This podcast is part of the Garnet Media Group Podcast Network. Garnet Media Group is a partnership between the student-run media outlets at the University of South Carolina. For more information and to see more student work, visit garnetmedia.org. Hey guys, welcome to Adventures Beyond the Coop, the podcast where we hear from former and current Gamecocks who've done something a little wild. I'm your host, Chloe Barlow. If you like going on adventures, getting outside, or just want to hear a good story, you're in luck. This is the podcast where we know sometimes you have to get lost to find yourself. This week, we really went beyond the coop. Carrie Cochran graduated from USC in May of 2021 with a double major in political science and philosophy. Now, she's halfway across the world, where she's studying renewable energy at the University of Iceland. Carrie describes herself as a jack-of-all-trades who just loves doing things, and that's pretty evident. She's a world traveler, a climate activist, a hub of knowledge about energy and natural resources, and she's an artist with quite the eye for the aesthetics around her. Our conversation opened my eyes to not only new perspectives on energy, but on how to gain the confidence, especially as a young woman, to travel the world and chase my dreams. I hope you guys can get some of the same from the episode. All right. Well, welcome to the podcast, Carrie. Hi, thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. I guess let's just start with where are you right now? <laughs> well, um, I am in Reykjavik, Iceland right now, which is a little farther away from Colombia than I imagined I'd be. Yeah. What brought you there? Um, so I'm here getting my master's in uh, the ENR program, and my specialization is renewable energy, energy economics, sustainability, and society. Okay, what is that program again? Uh, the Environment and Natural Resources Program at uh, University of Iceland. Okay, how'd you get there? <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I've been thinking about that myself as well. It's so easy when you're kind of looking back on things to, to say, oh yeah, this is the reason why and, um, you know, create a perfect narrative. But I actually came to Iceland first when I was 17 um, for a school conference, I guess. It was this conference called, uh, like, this is science of sustainability or something. And it was just, I mean, I went there, I had a great time and I was like, yeah, climate change, this is important. And it, it felt good, but nowhere, if you'd pulled me aside then and been like, yeah, you're going to move here and you're going to study this stuff. I don't know if I would have believed you. Um, and then of course, looking back at it, you're like, oh, this all makes sense. You know, I was, I was here before. So I think I'm going <laughs> to backtrack it then to when I was the summer of my, in between my junior year and my, um, no, summer in between my sophomore year and my junior year. So I spent a summer as a kayak guide in Alaska. And right around sophomore year was the time that I was beginning to think about, okay, I have two years left, like we got to start to figure out what I want to do, um, because I didn't really have any clear picture. And so I knew I wanted to work with the environment, I wanted to work in sustainability, and the only thing that I had been exposed to in my political science classes, the only thing that was coming to mind was environmental law. And I was like, lukewarm on that, but you know, for that summer I was chugging away, like taking practice LSAT quizzes and, um, I was, you know, this was all when I was in Alaska and I was giving a tour actually to a group of people and this one woman, she was from Holland and she was American. And she was like, oh yeah, well, I just got my master's over in Europe and it was really cheap and really easy and really different. And now I live abroad and I, you know, am 
I like travel and I, I've always thought of myself as someone who would love to do that. So I immediately, you know, went back and I started Googling and trying to find out the program that she went to or other environmental programs. And actually for a second, I, I almost felt like a little defeated because a lot of these things required science backgrounds. And my background is in political science and philosophy. So I was like, oh no, you know, where, where can I fit into this where I want to work with the environment, but I don't want to do the science about the environment. And then I remembered that I had been to Iceland before and they were pretty sustainable. And I was like, let me just Google and like see what's out there. So I looked it up and the first thing that popped up was my university, um, which is the University of Iceland. And I found my program and it was just like, I, I like, I knew that that was where I wanted to go. Um, it's, it's a really phenomenal program. And what I love the most about it is that it's interdisciplinary. So that means that you can come at it from any background and then also take it wherever you want. Um, so you can specialize in different fields, you can combine fields. And I think that's a really important aspect of education, especially when you are tackling issues like climate change or thinking about sustainability or um, energy because all of these um, topics aren't insular, you know, they're not singular to what they are. Everything is so interconnected and it's really important that we take, you know, a little step back and look at it, not by subject, but by how all of the things come together. So that's what the program was basically, um, advertising. And that's what I was really looking for. So it was just a natural fit. I honestly, I didn't even apply to any other graduate school programs which was nerve wracking um, my senior year. Let me tell you, I was like, I just have to hear back from them because this was the only one, but um, it really was the only one that I wanted to go after anyway. So it was kind of a case of like, just set your sight and go for it. That's crazy to just like, to go from not knowing what you want to do to just be like, yeah, I'm going to Iceland. Like that's, that's a leap of faith really. Yeah, it, uh, it certainly was. And um I mean, I've enjoyed it. And this whole process has been such a growing uh, process for me, for sure. I mean, I've, I've always been, you know, a pretty like on top of it, capable individual. And I like to get things done on my own, but just the whole shift from moving to a different country where they, they all speak English here, but they're, the national language is Icelandic. So like government official documents are in Icelandic, a lot of other, you know, little things that you don't have to, you don't even think about and you take for granted when you're living in the country that you've always lived in. Um, so there were just so many like minute growing moments. And then of course, like taking myself away into, um, away from South Carolina into a very cold place and, you know, all of the regional adjustments, um, that was certainly big but I've loved every second of it because you don't really grow if you stay where you're comfortable you know and it's uh, I definitely pushed myself out of my comfort zone and got a lot back from it because it's it's really amazing and it it's so cool to change your perspective and exist in a place in a different country because you can see different ways of society being structured in different ways people react to their own governments or different ways you know just to live life and then in addition to that, my program and a lot of people who have been exposed to aren't just Icelandic. So I'm really embedded in an international community here. And it's just so beautiful because you can all talk and exchange ideas and, you know, stories. And um, there's so many things that are different, but also you, you find a lot of commonality between people. 
That's really beautiful. The idea that like you can be so different, but what's all, what makes us all human, you know, what's yeah. on the inside. I guess Iceland is obviously really different from the States. What kind of culture shocks did you go through when you moved? Um, hmm. It's harder to like say now that I've, I've been living here. I moved in August. Um, so on like, I think the language was a big one, just kind of minute things. Um, a lot more people like walk around here. Um, it's not, so I, I made the adjustment from like having a car since I was 16 and being used to driving everywhere to like being just on foot. And so that was certainly an adjustment as well. Um, you know, just kind of different like little mannerisms of things. Um, very interesting thing here is that people like their last name isn't a family name. They're named son or daughter of their their father. So like um, my dad's name is Kevin. So I'd be Carrie Kevin's daughter, like D-O-T-T-I-R, um, which is so interesting. So that means that like your professors and everyone that you talk to, they don't want you to call them by their last name. So growing up in the South, I'm like so used to doctor, Mrs. So-and-so. And it's just, oh, call me Brunhilder. Oh, call me John, call me whatever. And um, it's a really informal environment here I think but that also like allows everything to become a lot more relaxed and collaborative which I really enjoy yeah absolutely so what exactly are you looking to do with your program could you talk a little bit more, more about that so my program is set up with um a first year being where you take a lot of classes and the second year you work on your thesis now you can either do a semester-long thesis or a year-long thesis and I decided to do a year-long thesis. So the research that I'm immediately looking towards right now is um, I'm interested in doing, this is going to be a mouthful, um, a cost optimization model of renewable resource endowments in the southeastern U.S., um, which is essentially just taking stock of, hey, this is what the energy grid is right now. These are the resources that we could have. This is how much it's going to cost. And then using um, kind of like an optimization model to just pick the best ones, um, which is so funny that I've come all the way out to Iceland and anytime I get a project or an essay where I get to pick the topic, I'm like driving it right back to the Southeast, um, which is funny that I've gone so far to, to keep focusing it there. But I think it's really important and you know, places that are a little bit behind in what they need to be doesn't mean that we shouldn't focus on them. You know, if, Iceland is really renowned for all of its renewable energy here. They're completely 90% uh, hydropower, and then they have geothermal heating, and then some electricity with geothermal. And so everyone, of course, hears that I'm studying energy, and they're like, oh, you're in the place for it. Like, I am in the place for it, but I am trying to see what lessons I can take from here and kind of turn them back to where I'm from. Yeah, that makes sense, kind of going back to your roots. And I think it's really important to learn from places like Iceland who are kind of ahead of the curve, but also bring that knowledge back to places that are a little behind it. You know, we can't forget about them, right? For sure. Yeah. So do you want to bring your work, do you want to bring yourself and your work eventually back to the Southeastern United States or do you have your site set on somewhere else? Um, so I do think I want to bring my sites back to the Southeast. I'm kind of operating under this, this life goal of I really want to help spearhead the transition to a zero carbon and environmentally sustainable economic model while simultaneously um, enabling sustainable development for um, all, which just means that we're not leaving people out. And you can think about this on a global context um, where the westernized countries, a lot of developed countries have gone through this process of development using fossil fuels 
Um, and then now when we need to cut it, it's really hard to say just you can't do that to countries that are in the process of um, growing their economies and developing more. And so how can we um, you know, all begin to shift forward into this um, more sustainable economic model, but making sure that we don't leave people behind and we don't make it harder for other people who, you know, haven't even done the damage in the first place. Yeah, I guess I don't know a lot about energy and I try my best to be sustainable, but from your perspective, what kind of shifts would you like to see the U.S. in general or the southeastern U.S. region make in order to have more sustainable energy consumption and usage? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I actually didn't know too much about energy as well before I came to this program. And I'm so glad I've gotten to focus on it. I don't know if it's what I want to run with the entire rest of my life, but it is the foundation of like our society. You know, it's, it's vital for economic activity. It's vital for social welfare, country development. And I guess to answer your question, there's kind of um, two different ways to look at it. So we have our um, production side and our consumption side. So it's, um, it's about kind of uniting the two and trying to like maximize efficiency on both ends. On the production side, of course, it is using more renewable energies. Um, the Southeast is really just so well endowed. I mean, there is so much hydropower available. There's a lot of wind resources. And then as you know, the sun is out. So uh, solar is a big option as well. And then of course there's like even the smaller things like biogas um, using kind of methane from landfills to generate electricity. There's just so many different um, little things to, to go into um, that the Southeast is more than capable of implementing. And they have actually implemented a variety of these techniques, the region in general, but what needs to happen is there needs to be upgrades to what's already existing and there needs to be expansion of that as well. And then on the flip side of consumption, that's really, there's again, so many different ways to address it. Um, I think the biggest one would be using energy more efficiency, efficiently. So like houses, I think release like 40% of the energy they use. And the Southeast is one of the bigger um, problem makers for that because of all the AC we use. And that's only going to increase as uh, climate change just makes it hotter down there. And then of course, you're gonna be using more energy to cool your house. And some places are still using natural gas and coal. They're all using natural gas and coal. And then that's just gonna further perpetuate the, the cycle. So um, just trying to break out of that, um, making our buildings more efficient, making our systems more efficient um, and also producing in different ways. What do you think is stopping us from making that shift or, or making those um, upgrades and expansion to the renewable energy sources we already employ? Yeah, um, there. it's never one reason uh, why those uh, you, you don't get to see the technologies integrated as quickly as you want. I think the biggest one that I could point to is uh, like techno technology lock-in or a path dependency, which is the, the idea that we have evolved along this one line. And so it's so much easier to just stay with the technology you have than move to something else. Um, if we look at like electric vehicles, for instance, uh, it's they are beginning to get a little bit more popular, but it's going to be really hard for them to fully permeate the market for electric vehicle charging stations to be all over the country, you know, not just in cities and rural areas as well. And um, it's also difficult still to get some vehicles to do the things that, you know, gas uh, petroleum vehicles can. So 
there's there's this notion of just you know we want to stay with what we have what we're familiar with what we've built our society around it's really hard to break out of that and then of course there's so many other barriers there's economic barriers there's investment risks and uncertainties there's social barriers a lot of people um perpetuate the non my backyard movement so you know some people don't want windmills around um or other facilities like that so they're you know they can all stack on top of each other it just creates this like big crazy puzzle um and i don't know it, it's kind of interesting to tug at it a little bit um so yeah so kind of shifting away from your work now more to your travel experience so you went to iceland first at 17 mm -hmm. have you always been interested in world travel um, I think so. I was really fortunate enough growing up with my family. Um, they made a point to like take us around America to see a bunch of different cities. And I always enjoyed seeing new places and experiencing new things. So I kind of like got the bug, you know, um, of, of wanderlust. And um, I even wanted to study abroad, but that's something that just didn't happen with the pandemic. Um, of course, I live abroad now, so I guess it all works out. Um, so I think I knew pretty early on that I always wanted to travel. And of course, I was in the mountaineering club um, with everyone else you interviewed. I was the vice president for two years and then secretary um, for one year. So that's like, you know, its own little form of travel and experiencing getting new experiences. Um, and that made me, you know, realize that I wanted to do that for a while. It's just, you know, staying in one place doesn't do it for me. I like seeing new things and having all those new experiences. Yeah. I, I think everybody who listens to this can probably relate to that. Yeah. As a young woman, it can be very daunting to travel the world. Um, I think sometimes it can, it can really like act as this like barrier to entry almost. So do you have any, anything to say to that? Do you have any like tips, anything you've learned? Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'm the best person for single female travel advice. Um, you know, it's that belief that has kept me like out of my car from, uh, as your, uh, first guest has been, that's not something that I would feel very comfortable with doing. Um, and then in my own defense, Iceland is actually one of the safest countries for a woman to be in. <laughs> um, so that has been a phenomenal experience. I'm walking around at night with my headphones in and I like, I am hundred percent safe. And it, it's, um, I mean, you just gain this sense of autonomy. Like you didn't even know that you had like freedom and autonomy and security. And that's really, really nice. And I hope that in feeling that for myself here, I can try to bring that wherever I go next. Um, of course, always staying cautious and on my guard, but sometimes I, I feel like there, there's a line of being too cautious and not trying new things to, you know, being able to like understand situations, but be confident in yourself and your decision making. So I guess that would be the advice that I have. Going back to your travels in Alaska, yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, what you did in Alaska. You said you were a kayak guide. I was, yeah. So I was a glacial kayak guide uh, up on the Mendenhall and we got to uh, take tour groups up like and we paddle up to a glacier. Um, we had three tours a day and it was like uh, two and a half miles out, two and a half miles back. It was really, really fun. Um, I really wanted to just have, I was in the mountaineering club and I had talked to the people before me and all of them had these crazy experiences and I was like, I want to do that you know I want to be a person like that and so 
I just started looking for jobs. And I think I first started looking at like ranch jobs or something. I was like, yeah, anything to get me out West. Like I'll, I'll, you know, be at a hotel in this, as long as I'm near mountains, it's fine. But I was on coolworks.com. I think that's what it's called. Coolworks or cool jobs. One of those, it's a website where they post a lot of seasonal work. And I saw the Alaskan um, posting and I was like, I know how to kayak. That seems a, a lot more fun than <laughs> just working on a ranch or something. And so I decided to apply for it. And luckily with my trip leading experience with uh, the Mountaineering Club, I was a stronger candidate for it and I got to go over there and it was really, really cool. Um, I think as somebody travels, it's really nice to stay in a place longer than like a week or a little vacation because you get to know it a lot better and you get to like the feel of it, um, which is, I guess, what I'm doing here as well. But it, it's been, it was really, really cool to do that. Um, and the company I worked for was called uh, Alaska Travel Adventures. And I know that they would definitely take more people from South Carolina. Did you apply alone or did you apply with friends or anything? Yeah, I applied alone. Really? Okay. So how do you have this confidence to to travel and to chase these experiences and to chase this wanderlust, how do you have the confidence to do that by yourself? Sort of, I think a lot of us struggle with that. Yeah, um, I think I I didn't start out with that confidence. So let me, let me just start there. Um, I think it came from my experiences in the Mountaineering Club. Um, not, I know everyone like kind of harkens back to that in the podcast, not to be um, on that as well, but getting to be an officer and be in charge of other people um, really puts you in a situation where you have to be comfortable and confident with yourself and the decisions you make. Um, because if you're not, then how can you, you know, take other people out into the woods? So it was, you know, being taking people on trips and developing that for myself that I was able to um, gain those skills. Yeah. And, um, Besides confidence, what other skills do you think you, you gained or you need to have before you can embark on travel by yourself? Um, I think curiosity is really important. Um, you've got an openness. I would say that confidence, curiosity, and openness would be the, like, carries three, you know, skills to take abroad. Um, because you, you do need to, you know, be self-assured and you also need to be open to whatever comes your way. You know, if I came to Iceland and I had in my head a picture of the experience I wanted to have or expected everything to be just like South Carolina, I would have been disappointed and not had a great time here. So you really do have to be, um, just like open and receptive to whatever kind of people come into your life or whatever events come your way. And, um, when you, have that kind of mindset you just find so many opportunities and connections coming up it's really um it's really just a good mindset to be in generally because you're not just trying to follow one path the second that you leave the idea of any certain path behind or any certain ladder you have to climb behind you just get you know it's a little scary because there, there's no you know less security but you get like so much more freedom and so much more opportunity and just things you wouldn't have expected before once you, you know, kind of put that down and say, I'm open, like, let's just see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Would you ever consider doing more seasonal work in the future or that was just kind of something you want to try out? Um, I was considering seasonal work if I didn't get into this program. And now that I'm here and I can feel myself on a bit more of a track. I, I think I don't, 
I don't know if I would continue seasonal work um, after this, just because I'm really invested <laughs> in uh, what's happening with the climate right now. And it is just something that we have a timer on, um, so to speak. So while I do fully think that your 20s and, you know, before your 20s are, you, you have such a low responsibility during this time um, and such a high amount of freedom that you really should utilize it to like the most you can. And I would recommend, you know, to anyone to take a seasonal job for here and there, but um, I've just found something I'm passionate and I'm going to chase it right now. And it's also uh, time sensitive. So I need to use this time that I have to, to go for it. Absolutely. I think you are very fortunate to have found something that you're passionate about and that you can chase. I think a lot of us are, are searching for that. So I think it's a really beautiful thing when you can find that, you know, at the age we're at. Oh yeah, totally. Um, and it's just, it's not even something that like, you know, I woke up one morning and I was like, okay, it's time to save the world. You know, it was a, a slow culmination and a shift. And it was really, I think honestly, for me, it was a shift from like a individual mindset to like a community mindset, so to speak. Um, you know, I came into college and I was so sold on the narrative of like working over 40 hours a week and climbing the ladder and, you know, not really taking the moment to enjoy myself until I retire or anything. And um, once again, the Mountaineering Club, I think, taught me a lot about slowing down and appreciating where you are and also connecting with nature and other people. And during that time, I was beginning to shift and see that like life is so much more fulfilling when you're not focus just on yourself and just on, you know, the boxes that you have to check when you appreciate and connect with everything around you. Um, it's just so much more fulfilling. And then I found that, you know, I have a certain set of skills and I can take these skills and take this desire to help other people and connect them in a certain way. So, yeah. Yeah. Was there ever a moment where you second guessed yourself or you got homesick or something? I, de okay, <laughs> like Thanksgiving to Christmas, I was homesick. And honestly, it's because the sun doesn't come up over here um, in the wintertime. And I, I just, I don't know, I always thought winter blues like was kind of a myth, like being in the South, I was like, yeah, it gets a little dark earlier, but that's nothing. But uh, at the worst of it, we were having like three and a half hours of sunlight. Um, and then of course with COVID kind of having that resurgence in November, like all of the things that I was doing socially, um, were shutting down or getting limited. And my friends and I, we were all, you know, taking exams, seeing family. So we were all getting isolated. So I do think there was a little period of homesickness, certainly, um, where I was missing the sun and missing my family. And also just all of that was amplified by me being a little bit more alone than I normally am over here. But I don't think I ever once, I haven't ever uh, regretted my decision here. It's, it's been a really phenomenal experience and I've loved just every second of it. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So you talk about going on these crazy adventures a lot or getting outside. What do those adventures look like in Iceland? Yeah. Um, so it's definitely... I would say like <laughs> the quantity of adventures I had when I was an undergrad was a lot higher. Um, being an officer of MW Dove, I was accustomed to just going out to the mountains every weekend. And I almost had that mentality coming in here. I was like, Iceland just has better mountains, bigger mountains. Like, let's get out here. 
Um, but of course, being in a master's program, I had to like rescale that down a bit and take my adventures um, where I can. But I've fortunately gotten to go travel through the south of Iceland, seen a bunch of waterfalls, um, seen the glacier. And then um, I've traveled around the Snafflesness Peninsula, which is so hard to pronounce. Um, black sand beaches, let's see, like volcano craters. Um, and then I've done some backpacking in the highlands, which was probably my favorite thing. Uh, I would recommend that to anyone who comes to Iceland. I think they're only open from June to like the end of August, first, to, first week of September or so, um, just because it starts to get snowy there a lot earlier. But it has been, I mean, I just feel like I'm living on a different planet sometimes over here with all of the geothermal wells coming up, steams rising out of the mountains. Um, and I have no idea what's going on minerally, but the, the mountains are like rainbow over here sometimes. And actually the first day that I flew in, I met some people and the volcano was active um, here. And they said, you wanna go to the volcano? I was like, yeah, of course I wanna go to a volcano. So the, on day one, um, I, I had such an incredible adventure. So it was, you know, it, it's been really fantastic over here for sure. Your, your first day in Iceland, you met strangers and went to an active volcano. Yeah. <laughs> That is pretty amazing. That's really epic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what, what kind of trips do you have planned next? Do you have any, any, uh, I guess what, what's next on your, uh, your travel list? Yeah. Um, so for traveling, my family actually just visited for their spring break. So, um, part of the stuff that I mentioned, I just did with them. So I got to check that off the box. Um, I, uh, Let's see, I have a couple of friends visiting. So I think that's just gonna be another round of like, let's see things in Iceland. Let's hike in the, the highlands. Let's maybe do the ring road. Um, I do wanna see as much of Iceland as I can while I'm here and get to soak it all up. But also this is the closest I've been to, to Europe. So flights are a lot cheaper. Um, I do wanna go over there a little bit. I actually just booked a flight today to go to Budapest. Um, one of my friends is studying abroad there. So I thought I would visit him because flights were cheap. And um, I think after my experience here, I graduate in May of 2023, um, I'm probably looking, I'm looking at some programs in the UK. So that's where I might be going to next. What kind of programs? Uh, yeah, so specifically I'm applying to the Oxford one plus one MBA program. So it's a one year master's program and then you uh, get an MBA after that as well. Um, I don't know how much adventuring I'll be doing there. I think that's that's going to be <laughs> grind time, but I am just so excited to learn more. Um, coming to Iceland has really helped me um, figure out where I want to exist in this sphere in the conversation about climate change. And I think uh, that program specifically will help me kind of like focus in the perspective that I have now that I've built in Iceland on um, you know, how to kind of better act to systemic change um, to solve climate change. <laughs> yeah, what would you say is, um, if it can even be boiled down to one thing, what do you think is the most important thing we can do on our own to help combat climate change? Yeah, um, that's such a tricky question because 
like, um, you know, 100 companies are responsible for 90% of the pollution. So on an individual level, sometimes it's, you know, of course, you want to recycle and you want to make sure you are using your energy efficiently. Um, but I, I would say the most important thing is to be aware and, um, you know, talk to other people and have conversations about it. Because it's, if you know something about it, or you're reading about it, and you're not you know, trying to connect with other people about it, then it's just staying with you. Um, but I, I really think increasing education and increasing the connection to the subject matter, something that is, it's affecting all of us. You know, this is the greatest problem humanity has ever faced. Um, and, you know, it's so abstract that it's very hard to, to sit with mentally sometimes, but, you know, educating yourself on what's going on so you can also make demands to companies about how you want to be better. I know Lewis was talking about uh, divesting, asking the university to, to divest. That's a really great thing. So just staying, you know, keeping up with what's going around locally as well as, you know, in the world would be what I'd say is the best thing you can do. Yeah, makes it sound a little bit more hopeful, at least being able to oh. do something. <laughs> oh, totally, totally. And I think that's, you know, the first step of the process here is to, to increase awareness and just to, um, you know, help everyone realize what exactly is going on, because especially with just there's so much misinformation spreading around now, it's really difficult to figure out, you know, what's true, what's not, and also just what you want to focus on. There's so many world events happening all the time. And, um, you know, COVID on one hand has like changed the, the topic of conversation and brought a lot of attention away from climate change. But on the other hand, it's allowed us to slow down um, the way we've lived and what we've always done. So as we're taking this pause and as we're kind of restructuring a little bit, it also, I think, open up, opens up a little avenue for us to ask, well, hey, can we also be a little bit more sustainable as we move back into, you know, regular society? Yeah, I think it kind of at least gives us a, a way to restart almost. Yeah. Kind of look at how we come back into our lives as better people, maybe. Yeah. For yeah. sure. So you're not only a world traveler, you're not only this incredible source of knowledge about climate and energy, you also are an artist. So tell me a little bit about how that plays a role in your life. Uh, yeah, so I am definitely like a jack of all trades. Um, I just love doing things. <laughs> um, so I actually only got into art, let's see, like, January of uh, 2021. So it's, I, I'm like a, a baby artist really, um, but I've loved it. I've taken a couple of art classes and um, actually I took this one class at the university. It was called um, like 20th century art history. And it just like was one of those classes that just like changed the way I see the world. Um, you have, you. it's just, it's so crazy how much power um, and impact visuals can can be and um so I really wanted to get into that and start doing that um when I was in the states I loved doing multimedia pieces so I was painting and wood burning and doing collage and um using my iPad and doing graphic work and kind of blending all of that together um but here paint supplies are a little bit more expensive um so I have moved to predominantly graphic work um I do a lot of the show posters and uh, stuff for people in the collective that Lewis talked about. I'm a part of it as well. 
Um, and it's, it is a lot easier to like make art for other people and just to, to have a task. They're like, oh, hey, I need this thing. I'm like, I'm happy to give it to you. And then, you know, to open up the blank canvas on yourself and you're just like, what do I do now? Um, but I have been doing a little project. It's very unstructured uh, called like Compassionate Revolutionary. And it's just kind of where I'm trying to use art as an expression to pair with the things that I'm learning here. Um, so I've done like a little graphic series on some themes of sustainable development. And then I've also just done some more like abstract reactionary pieces just about, um, you know, women and the environment or uh, natural disasters and the effects that they have there. So it's, it's been a really nice complement to kind of what I'm doing here and a nice outlet as well. But art has definitely changed the way I see the world, um, especially when you like begin to work with colors and lines and shapes, you just find so much more appreciation for them. And I found that, you know, going through my day-to-day -day life, like I will stop and like, just, you know, really appreciate the clouds or a building. And it's, it's so fulfilling to have something like that and to find more beauty than I think I would have otherwise without art. Yeah, definitely. I'm curious, um, one of your art pieces that you talked about, or one of your series of art that you talked about really piqued my interest, Women in the Environment. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, so there, there's so many different ways we can talk about it, I guess. Um, so like, first of all, women are disproportionately affected by climate change and by environmental issues. If we look at like um, energy and women all over the world, women in developing countries are the ones who are sacrificing their time. Um, they're at time that could be spent in education or doing something else by collecting traditional energies like firewood. And then we have secondary effects where they're bringing it into the houses to cook with it. They're poorly ventilated. And so they're burning wood, burning whatever and breathing it in, which is going to lead to higher rates of cancer um, and can often lead in like predominant death. So that's, that's another concern. Um, migration is also a big part of climate change. It's displacing a lot of people and women are displaced um, at a higher rate. And then of course, as we were talking about earlier about safety, like women on the road being displaced, being in that kind of environment that's threatening their safety as well. So we have this, these aspects where it's kind of pushing on us a little bit harder, but then I also see women as a solution, so to speak. Um, a lot of the, the countries that performed really well during the pandemic um, had women leaders in that time. And I think it's because of not to be like men are this way, men are this way, but but kind of a more care for others and a slower um, attention and, you know, not just acting impulsively or quickly, but taking time and really making sure that everyone is accounted for and everyone is okay. And that's going to be something that we really need when we address climate change issues. And I mean, we have a lot of uh, really cool activists out there who are um, women and who are, you know, fighting the fight and trying to use the skills that we have uh, to help. So I, I think there's, you know, the two things there. Oh, and um, I think like just even, what is it? Um, family planning for women um, is as effective as like windmills in terms of climate change. So giving women the opportunity to control if they wanna have kids and then how many can significantly change the what the population is going to look like in the future. And that's going to, um, like impact the amount of resources and what is demanded. So if we were to, I think it was Project Drawdown that um, did this study 
um, which was also led by a woman, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. She's amazing, you can look her up. Um, but yeah, like it, giving women uh, access to their own family planning and decisions over their own bodies uh, was as effective on par with uh, implementing wind technology like worldwide, which is really, really cool. That is so cool to see how interdisciplinary, really to use one of your words, how interdisciplinary this all is and how climate change relates to family planning, relates to social issues. It's, it, I mean, it's just all so connected in ways that you just wouldn't think about it. And I think sometimes that can be overwhelming to think about it like that, but it's also, again, hopeful because you realize that one small change somewhere can kind of create that butterfly effect other places for good or bad. Yeah, totally. Um, totally. And that's kind of what I feel like that's what I love about climate change. <laughs> um, but that's what I'm really interested in is like I said earlier, something's a big puzzle. Like it is, it is so pervasive in every aspect of our life. And it's something that we don't even think about. And you're right. Like sometimes it is hard to think about, but it's also like so exciting that, you know, like, oh, what if we have, we do this and this is going to have effect this way. Oh, and like, let's think about maybe integrating this thing. And there's just so many different components to it, which is just so exciting because it also like leaves so much opportunity to have solutions, which I think is really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any um, mentors or role models you look up to in this movement? Um, yeah, so I would say Catherine, Dr. Catherine Wilkinson, who I mentioned before, is just phenomenal. Uh, she's also from the South, so maybe there's going to be a trend in like Southern women just rising up and um, helping to save the planet. Um, but she uh, was a founder on Project Drawdown, and she's also part of All We Can Save, which is a book anthology, but also a movement, a collection of women's voices, um, poems, artists, all about climate change and the environment. Um, and she's just doing a really great job, I think, of helping bridge that gap between what's going on in the sciences and like increasing public awareness. And like I said, that's going to be the, the biggest thing we can do right now is try to bridge those gaps between the research and the economy, between our knowledge and, you know, our everyday life. And so I, I definitely look to her as someone who's doing a great job of, you know, beginning to unite things and bring everything together. Yeah. Um, sorry, I literally lose my place every time I'm in an interview. I don't know where my brain goes. <laughs> no problem. It just leaves me. I just got so wrapped up thinking about the environment. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess. Are oh, okay. Are you working on any? Um, are you working on any research right now, or is it just kind of the program? Um, yeah, so I'm kind of getting ready for my thesis that does start next year, but I've begun to compile some data on um, just the, the current resource endowments of the Southeast, and then um, I'm just beginning to find like the cost and what is available there, um, but I actually uh, have another exciting research uh, project potentially going on. So here in Iceland, they have something called the Student Innovation Fund. Um, and all students can apply for it during the summer and they can, um, you know, apply, apply for this. And it can be for like, if they want to support themselves during an internship or if they have a cool project they want to do. And so uh, I've actually worked with um, one of my professors who's done a really great job and she's another bridge um, and she helps connect 
she actually focuses on like disasters and art and how you visually communicate those sort of things. Um, but I'm going to be working with her hopefully to document all of the interdisciplinary projects in Iceland with a specific focus on the art and science projects and basically um, create like a little map of just, you know, what are you doing? How's it going? How can you better be better supported? And as I'm going through this, this process, this um, interview process, documenting it, we'll be putting it on a website for other people to see to encourage collaboration. But um, I'll be building a best framework practice for a conference, which just means, you know, as I'm doing this, I'm finding out how can we best get these people together. And if it picks, if, if I get the fund and if it picks up enough momentum um, over the summer, we are potentially looking at organizing a national conference to help unite um, these interdisciplinary subjects, which would be so amazing. That is really amazing and really cool that you found somebody to, to connect with that is doing the kind of stuff that you are already doing. I think a lot of times, I know for me, I have this crazy idea about like connecting things that just don't make sense to mm -hmm. anybody else, but in my brain they do, but then I'm like, where do I even start? So it's, it's great that you found that and you're yeah. doing it. And that's also, I think, another advantage of being here in Iceland because it's such a small space. Um, there's not as many like hoops to jump through as there are in America. And because people know each other, they're a lot more willing to share their information, share their data and be collaborative. Um, I think in America, there is almost this competitiveness. There is a competitiveness, you know, um, and sometimes people are hesitant to reach out because you want to have credit for something or you want your idea or, you know, we're, we're placed in such a way that we feel like we have to compete with each other. We have to win. Um, but really you can get the best things done when you work together. And so it's been so cool to be in this smaller environment where there's a, a much greater community focus because it's really, it's been so cool to see what they can accomplish here and then what even I can accomplish, you know, if I'm just jumping into it as well. How is the art scene over there? I'm curious because I mean, we talked about how in Colombia it's kind of this artsy kind of funky place and you're doing a lot of artistic work over there. So how is the, the art scene in general? Um, it's really great. So there's murals like all over the city, which is really cool. Um, and there's a lot of galleries going on. And I think there, you know, there is a, a big emphasis on art, which I really like to see. Um, there's a lot of, there's like a big like indie film scene over here, which is so funny. Um, and I really enjoy, and because it's such a small place, I got circulated to like um, on some email chain to be an extra in one. And like now you just get those all the time. And so it's, it's really, um, it's really cool. I actually had a project that was in between my university and the art university. And I was speaking to one of the strictly art students um, about his time there. And he said, a lot of people also enjoy coming here and will just stay here because the opportunities are a lot greater um, over here. Um, because it's just a little bit smaller. It's a lot easier to get funding. It's a lot easier to support yourself as an artist. So that's like laid the foundation for a really good art scene. I'm going to ask you what I ask everybody. My favorite question. Okay. What advice would you give freshman year you? Oh, that, that girl. Okay. Um, <laughs> I think I would just repeat to her what I've been telling you is just be open um, and be curious and you know don't worry about taking one set path because there really isn't one just kind of follow whatever you're passionate about whatever is interesting to you and you know things will pop up for you. 
As Carrie puts it, her keys to travel are confidence, curiosity, and openness. I would even venture to say we should try to incorporate more of those into our everyday lives, right? Every day is an adventure if you make it one. (laughs) But really, thanks again to Carrie for being on the pod and sharing so much knowledge about renewable energy and how to fight for more sustainable energy practices. And as always, a big thank you to you for listening. Remember, chase your dreams, hug a tree, and be good. See you guys next Friday. Before we go, our music is Bad Nostalgia by Anthem of Rain, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License.